1: To where we left off from last week. Now we were in Proverbs chapter 6 and we came to, we, we sort of came to rest on this theme of reproofs of instruction are the way of life. And that's out of verse 23, Proverbs 6, 23. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. And we sort of rested on that. It's part of a larger thought, which he continues down through the end of verse 24. But I want to pick it up from this. They're the way of life, reproofs of instruction. There's no getting away from them. And we shared last week, just by way of review, we shared last week how that uh, most animals are born into the world already knowing a lot of what they need to know by way of instinct. They understand that there's certain things that they have to do and that they have to do quickly. They may not understand the reasoning of them. They just know it's part of them. It's in them. It's, It's almost like it's on a genetic level. And I think we talked about how when wild horses are born into the wild, that within a matter of seconds they are trying to stand up on their feet because their instincts are telling them that they have to get moving fast because as long as they're still, they're vulnerable to wild animals. But human beings, not so. We come into the world with very, very few instincts already in place. And so because of that, we have to learn. We have to be taught. That's why do you think our, our um, and I think I tried to say this last week, I tried to say gestation period, but that's, that's you're in the womb. You know, that's that's like nine months to form you in the womb. And then another 18 years to raise you, to prepare you for life in the real world. 18 years, man. Just call it 20. Round it up to 20. Two decades to get you prepared for life in the world. Why does it take so long? Part of it is because we grow slowly. Yes, I understand that. But a lot of that is also because we have to be taught everything. We have to be taught our language. We have to be taught. um, We have to be taught. Ethics. We have to be taught morals, because if you just leave a kid to run amok and not show him the difference between right and wrong, he's going to grow up into an absolute monster. And there's two reasons for that. Okay, One, because he's not having any instruction, and two, because there's a sinful nature already at work in his little heart, thanks to Adam and Eve. And it's eventually going to war out with and it is going to win against his conscience. It happens to everybody. It's why everybody needs to stay a savior. Full stop. No argument. Everyone needs a savior because we all eventually lose that fight. And so what are the way what's what are what is the way of life reproofs of instruction being taught. It's why we have a school system, however deeply flawed and compromised it may be. We still have it and we have it for a reason. It's why we have universities deeply flawed and compromised as though maybe as, as they, those may be. We have them for a reason. It's why we have to have, you need two parents in a house. You need a mother and a father in the life of a child, because you need both sides of that fence raising them up so their childhood is balanced, so that their education is balanced, so that their understanding and their wisdom are all balanced. You have to have wise, competent instructors in your life. And the learning never ends. So if you're a teenager that's like on the verge of finishing high school and you're thinking, this is it, man, I'm almost on the verge of freedom and yay, I'll never have to go through this again. Sorry, guess again you're going to be getting taught and instructed by somebody somehow or another all of the days of your life, whether in an official setting, whether on a job, whether in a classroom, whether in a church. And that's something that we are very, very big on here and that we will not back down from is instruction in the Word. Instruction so that we may all grow in Christian character and in the grace and in the knowledge of Almighty God. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Don't fight it because if you win that fight, you end up losing because then you don't get the reproofs of instruction. And then you'll end up listening to somebody else's half-baked, hair-brained instruction on something. And then you'll be like that fellow I met with a few weeks ago. Your theology and your understanding of the word will become so Rubik's cubed and twisted. It won't make any kind of sense. And you'll find yourself justifying alcohol and abstaining from bacon. Or worse, you'll get some weird racism, you'll get some weird racial slant on your Christianity and you'll start thinking that you're one of the two children of Israel because you're a racial minority. Oh yeah, there's all kinds of wonky-donk doctrines that are floating around out there. When God could care less what your bloodline is. Because if you go back over to Romans, He makes that very clear. Whether Jew, whether Gentile, or something in between. Everybody falls short of the glory of God and needs Jesus. Can I get an amen on that? So somebody comes around your door trying to tell you that because you're an ethnic minority, that you're one of the true descendants of Israel. Laugh at them, close the door, and never give them the time of day again, please. Because there is a bitter, bitter element of racism in that kind of theology. And it'll lead you down the wrong path. If you're white, it doesn't matter. If you're Latino, it doesn't matter. If you're black, it doesn't matter. Well, but the Bible says that Jesus was actually black. Who in the world cares? And it's a toss-up. And the truth of that matter is, it doesn't matter. If it was black, it doesn't matter. He still died for our sins, amen? If he was Asian, that'd be super weird, but it wouldn't matter. He still died for our sins. I guarantee you, he wasn't some blue-eyed European-looking, blonde-haired, Aryan nation ideal. That junk is absolute mythology, so you can throw that out the window. Most of your Catholic artwork, you can just throw it away, because it's just not accurate, but... Okay, so there's all of that. And all of that just stemming from what we were saying, reproofs of life, reproofs of instruction are the way of life. And that is a mercy to us, that God does not want us to remain in ignorance really concerning anything where his word is concerned. He wants us to know more, and then he wants us to do something with that knowledge, doesn't he? So that's just a case of of puffing up our own knowledge because the Bible says that knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifies. And so if we grow an increase in knowledge, then in an increase of knowledge and understanding, let's do something more for the kingdom, amen? Let's talk to someone about Jesus. Help drag someone out of the error in which they've been living or believing all of their lives. And help drag them into the light, kicking and screaming if you have to. If they get saved, they'll thank you for it if they don't then uh, maybe they won't thank you for it but they'll know something they didn't and god can work with that let's move on now the whole sentence here was that the commandment is a lamp and that the law is light and reproof of instructions reproofs of instructions are the way of life to keep thee from the evil woman from the flattery of the tongue of the strange woman. And we clarified this last week. This isn't some kind of sexist injunction and condemnation against all women, but simply against women who are evil and of untrustworthy character. Now, this theme is going to run through well into chapter 7. And I'm going to kind of speed my way through this because there's some of this that I really want to get to tonight without it being a 45-minute study. So he says, Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. For by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought to a piece of bread. And we said last week that that's just another way of saying that a man is brought to poverty. By means of a whorish woman, not by means of all women, okay? But by means of a woman of a loose and whorish disposition, a man is brought to poverty. He is brought to the end of his financial means. He is brought to, certainly he is brought to the end of his wisdom, Whatever, so whatsoever wisdom he might have possessed has gone out the window, if so be that he lets himself be taken in by an adulterous and whorish woman. And he says, and the adulterous will hunt for the precious life. So what's he saying there? Women can be predators too. That's what he's saying. It's not just men in this whole toxic masculinity movement that, that's, a, that's a, a part of the, the modern 21st century war on masculinity, the war on boys and the war on men, to try and soy them up and stri- strip all of their masculinity away from them, strip all of their leadership ability from them, and turn them into pathetic, quivering sacks of jello worshiping at the feet of their women. There's more to it than that. There are women that can absolutely be predatory as well. It goes both ways. It goes both ways. And so, masculinity, femininity, when they are in the state in which God made them to be, they are wonderful in each their own roles, okay? But when either of these things, masculinity or femininity, fall under the influence of sin, they can be terrifying and they can be terrible. They really can. Not just on the men's side, on the women's side as well. Not just on the women's side, on the men's side as well. You notice know, how I couch all of this stuff, how precise I try to be with my language. We don't pick on women here. We don't pick on men here. We pick on everybody here. And it's not even really picking on. It's exposing the truth from the battery of lies that we're always bombarded on a, bombarded with on a constant basis, whether in the news or popular entertainment or, or or in in the beliefs of others. The truth is that anybody under the influence of sin is capable of being a monster. And so he says here that the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Now that doesn't get the man off the hook now. Okay? Oh, well, she, she beguiled me with her feminine wiles and I couldn't resist. Oh, yes, you could, you sorry hound. You just chose not to. So the responsibility gets spread pretty evenly. It really does. Let's move on. He says, can a man, this is where we stopped last week. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? So he that goeth in to his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. Period. End of story. Well, she beguiled me. Doesn't matter. You're still guilty. You gave in and you didn't have to. Well, uh, I, I couldn't resist. She was so hot. She was smoking hot. That's the phrase, isn't it? She was smoking hot. She was beautiful. She was just. She was everything I ever wanted. Yeah, except she was married, or you were married and she wasn't. And either way, there was an adulterizing. There was an adulterating of a marriage that happened there, and it's devastating. There's lessons in this, brothers and sisters. I know it might seem a little bit entry-level because us who are here were born again, and we would think, well, I would never do that sort of thing. I would never, I would never let myself get involved with someone who's married. I wouldn't do that. But the Bible tells us: let a man take heed when he stands, when he thinks he stands, lest he fall. That's a New Testament warning. It's given to every single one of us. Let a man, let a woman, let a person. Take heed when they think they stand, lest they fall. Because a lot of times it's when you are standing strong in the faith and you're faithful, and, and then you become aware that you're actually standing strong in the faith and you're being faithful, that that's when the temptation of the devil comes in. And he starts chipping at your foundations. Oh, you think you're strong, don't you? Oh, yeah, you're a mighty warrior of faith, huh? And he starts whittling away at the foundations of your life. He starts whittling away at the walls. He starts chipping away. Let me tell you something about your enemy, the devil, and how he fights, okay? and Let this this be something that you remember always throughout your life. The devil fights wars of attrition. Do you know what that means? That word attrition? You've heard that phrase perhaps, well, this is a war of attrition. It's a war that's not being fought like most wars usually are, which is uh, one army comes against another in an attempt to overwhelm it with its forces and its firepower, shock and awe, all of that stuff hearkening back to Desert Storm and all of that, and, uh, and just overwhelm them, overcome them, and have a swift, decisive victory. The devil doesn't usually fight wars like that because Christians recognize that type of an onslaught a lot of time. Something goes completely haywire in your life and you recognize this is the hand of the devil. I am going to pray harder. I am going to walk closer with God. A war of attrition is a different kind of war. It's a war designed to wear you out. That's what he does. He wants to wear you out. He wants to get you tired. And he wants to get you to where your thinking isn't straight and you're making stupid decisions because you're not at rest in Christ, and you're not building up your most holy faith. I told a brother recently, um, not that there was anything particular that was going on in his life. I'm not saying that at all. But it was just something that he. There's something that he said to me that it uh, it just it came on in my life in my mind like a light, and I shared it with him. I said, "Before you lay your head down tonight to sleep, you make sure you pray in the Holy Ghost. Pray in the Holy Spirit." Because when you pray in the Holy Spirit, you're building up your most holy faith. You're building up your most holy faith. You're making yourself stronger in the Lord. And that's critical. It's critical for survival because then when the devil comes in with his wars of attrition in an attempt to wear you out, getting your eyes off the prize and on to your circumstances, getting your eyes off of God and onto whatever it is that you want or don't, excuse me, want or maybe don't have or whatever else it might be. And he starts working on you and he starts working on you and working on you. And in time, if we don't become wise to that and then overcome him, well, we might find ourselves even being tempted by something like this. And if you don't think that it happens, I'll tell you right now, it does. I had a friend who was positively destroyed by this sort of thing. Absolutely destroyed by it. It wasn't an adultery thing, but it was something very much akin to that. It was right there in the same neighborhood of, of transgressions that ended up taking him. And I think it had, honestly, I think it had its roots in pornography and it, it ballooned into something far darker and it ended up destroying, it destroyed his entire life. Marriage, family, freedom, everything. I think he's sitting behind bars as we speak. Nobody that anyone in here knows, but he had once been a believer. There's a warning there. Watch yourself. Watch yourself. Be faithful, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion roams about seeking whom he may devour. I'm not saying that to inspire fear. I'm saying that to inspire diligence because none of us need to fall to any of them. So let's move on. He says you're not going to take fire into your bosom and not be burned. You're not going to walk on hot coals and not get burned. And so, don't even play around with it. That's what he's saying here in this verse 29, uh, round about verse 29. The lesson there is don't even play with it. Don't even play with it. Don't even open don't open your home to it. Don't even open your mind to the thought of it because that's where the devil always gets his foot in. When we let him is when we start imagining. Oh well, you know that, that person is so attractive. He pays so much more attention to me than my than my husband does, and he's just so nice, you know. And 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 so it starts to become a fantasy in the mind, perhaps of a woman it becomes a fantasy in the mind of a man when when something that he's always wanted that his wife is not struts past his field of view, and he begins to think on that and to meditate on that. It's like That's where you've got to slam the door shut on it. You've got to slam the door shut on it right there before it has a chance to go from the 300 ring circus of your mind down into the depths of your heart. Because once it reaches your heart, then you're going to start formulating and calculating how can I actually bring this to pass? And you may find yourself, you may find yourself breaking something you cannot fix. I'm not talking about not being able to be forgiven by God. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying that with people, there are lines you can cross that you can never, ever uncross. That man that I I mentioned that's sitting in jail right now crossed such a line. He says this. Let's go on. He says in verse 30, men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. What's he saying there? It's like, hey, if a man's hungry and he steals something to eat, people don't hate him. They understand. But he still has to pay the price if he gets caught. He still has to pay the price before the law if he gets caught. But then in verse 32, he goes on and says, But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. Now that's a heavy statement, it doesn't sound heavy, but look at what he's actually saying. He's saying a man that commits adultery with a woman is stupid, he is fundamentally stupid. There's a circuit that is not complete in his head. There's an understanding that he lacks at a very basic level. He said he lacks understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get and his reproach shall not be wiped away. Listen to that. Listen to what he says there. A man that crosses that line, a woman that crosses that line also, a person that crosses that line and violates the sanctity of a marriage, whether it's their own or somebody else's, he says, a wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. You're breaking something you cannot fix. You're breaking something you cannot fix because then what you've done is you've made a reputation for yourself. And people will know it. And It doesn't matter how much Hollywood and TV and all that glorifies it and tries to normalize it and and all that other sick, twisted trash that is given to us uh, by the hand of the devil's own Entertainment, Entertainment, entertainment department, okay? It doesn't matter that. People, regular folks, will know. That's a person that doesn't respect marriage. And they'll keep their spouse away from you if they can. And they're smart to do so. And then you've got this reputation. It's like, how can you ever overcome that? A lot of people never can. They have to move to a different city. They have to start a whole different life somewhere and hope their past doesn't catch up with them. Now, again, that doesn't say that God cannot or does not forgive and that he cannot restore. God can and he does where people genuinely repent. But people don't forgive a lot of people don't once once you've been branded by something and we know this we live in we live in the age of social media don't we where people say things on the internet and then get absolutely destroyed by the by the by their political op- uh, opposition and they're never allowed to ever be normal people again they're branded with a scarlet letter all their lives that's why by the way social media is a good thing not to base the value of your life on Twitter, Facebook, likes and shares and all that junk. That stuff is less than worthless, just so you know. So don't let that be a very large priority in your life. He says, a wound and dishonor shall he get. And then in verse 34, he says, for jealousy is the rage of a man. And this is where it really comes around to haunt a person. For jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not regard any ransom. Neither will he rest content, though thou givest many gifts. What's he saying there? You violate somebody else's marriage, that dude is coming for you. And if you think it doesn't happen in the modern age, it does. It happens all the time. In the, in American, in the United States judiciary system. judicial system, I think there's that phrase, it's called crime of passion. You've heard that. You've heard that phrase before. When someone commits a crime of passion. It's as common as mud. I don't even think it hardly makes the news anymore. It's just so common. It always has been common. Man comes home unexpectedly from his day job, wants to surprise his wife. He gets a surprise, catches her in flagrante with the neighbor, the gardener, or usually the co worker. Oh, yeah. It happens. And of course, he loses his marbles and she loses her life. And sometimes he does too. And sometimes the other guy does too. Jealousy is the rage of a man. Now, Solomon's not saying that this is good. He's not saying that it's right for a person to become enraged and murderous. He's just saying that that's what happens. It's what happens. Go to Brazil. It's common as mud down there. It's common as mud down there. In fact, I think in—I don't know if the, if the law was changed, but I know as recently as the 1990s, it was still legal for a man to kill his wife under certain conditions. I'm not, that's not right. I'm just saying that that's the way it was down there. It's part of the male composition to be jealous of his woman. And it's definitely part of the female composition to be jealous of her man. Tell me if I'm wrong. You know how you feel when that cashier looks at your husband in a way that you think is just a little bit more familiar than it ought to be. You know what that's like. And you get that feeling rise up on the inside of you. It happens in men, it happens in women. Why? Because there's an unspoken trust and an assumption, that, a right assumption that there's supposed to be fidelity there in that marriage, isn't there? Fidelity, faithfulness between a man and his wife. It's like, hey, you're my special only one, and I'm your special only one. And we're supposed to have forsaken all others for one another, come what may, no matter how many pounds intervene or whatever. He says that such a person will not regard any ransom, Neither will he rest content though thou givest many gifts. It doesn't matter. You cross that line, that dude's going to come for you. It doesn't matter if you throw money at him. It doesn't matter if you offer him your brand new Maserati. It doesn't matter what you offer him. He's going to shut you down. Or maybe if it's the other way around, you know, and the women are messing it up, that woman's going to come for you. Jealousy's real. Jealousy's real never put yourself in the path of something like that let's move on chapter 7 he says my son keep my words and lay up my commandments with thee keep my commandments and live and my law as the apple of thine eye what's that mean The, the thing that is most precious in your sight the most precious thing that you can possibly behold he said keep my law as the apple of your eye bind them upon thy fingers write them upon the table of thine heart Say unto wisdom, and we're coming back around to this now. We quoted this a few weeks ago. Say unto wisdom, thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. Now, next paragraph, verse 6, because that's all lead up into this. Remember how the rhythm of these teachings go. General admonition to wisdom and teaching and instruction, and then specific teachings on wisdom. Verse six, Solomon shares with his son something that he saw with his own eyes. He said, for at the window of my house, I looked through my casement. That's the wooden framing on the inside of a window. I looked through my casement and beheld among the simple ones. I discerned among the youths, a young man void of understanding. What was he saying there? I beheld a millennial. Just kidding. You know, I couldn't resist that. But we're past the millennials now. Aren't we in Gen Z now? We're raising up Gen Z. That's a whole different breed of people right there. He said, I beheld a young man void of understanding. He was saying, I I saw a young man who was stupid. He didn't get it. He was foolish. He was unwise. He lacked understanding. Verse 8. Well, it's, it's one sentence. He said... And beheld among the simple ones, I discerned among the youths, a young man, void of understanding, passing the, through the street near her corner. And he went the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot. Well, what's a harlot? Well, a harlot is, well, that's a, that is a whore, a harlot. It all refers to the same thing. A woman who farms herself out either for money or for pleasure or for both. Okay? There met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. And then look at this next verse right here. Verse 11. He says, in parentheses, he says, She is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now she is without, meaning she's outside her house. Now she is without, now in the streets, and lieth in wait at every corner. So she caught him and kissed him, and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. Therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, and with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of loves until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with love, with loves For the good man is not at home. He is gone on a long journey. He hath taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. Let's stop right there. It goes on a little bit further after that. Now, this is obviously obvious what he's describing here. Solomon, king of Israel, king of the people of God, standing at the window of his palace, looking outside his house and watching this scene unfold right before his eyes perhaps by the light of torch lamps that were out there in the streets. I don't know if they lit the streets at night. I don't know. That was like 3,000 years ago, so I wasn't dead. I'm old, but I'm not that old. But he watched this thing play out. This young man. So he describes the man. He describes the mark, the victim, if you will, or the vic, if you will, okay? A young man, void of understanding, among the simple ones. Simple means there's not a lot going on upstairs between their ears. They're just sort of getting by day by day. It's not, a, it's not, a, a, an, it's not a, an indictment against his character necessarily. It's just spelling it out. This guy doesn't have enough sense to buy a gumball out of a penny gumball machine. And so he's not thinking with his mind. He's thinking with something else. And you know what I'm talking about. I don't want to get crude. But it's real life. And he sees this guy is going towards this woman's house. He knows. She, he knows she's good for it. And he's certainly good for it because why not? He's dumb. He's not thinking right. He's simple. He doesn't remember the law of the Lord. He doesn't remember the law of his father and the advice and the instruction of his mother. He's not thinking of any of these things. He's thinking about a quick, easy, responsibility-free pleasure. Is what he's thinking about, and she's thinking about the same thing. So he describes it, and, he, and it's in the dark. It's in the, he even describes the time of day in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. Why? Because that's when such things get done, because the light is already gone from the day and people can't see your face. You remember, it was a popular image in media for a long time, for many ages, when they had dirty bookstores all around and and people would sneak off to them and they were always depicted as wearing these long trench coats with the collars up and they're in the hat over their head. Why? Because they were about some dirty business and they didn't want to be seen and they knew that it was a shameful thing that they were engaged in. Same thing here. Simple, young, foolish man sneaking out at night. She fi- he finds what he's looking for. It's a woman. Now look at the description of her. So we've got the description of him in the first couple of verses of this paragraph. Now let's look at the description of her. Subtle of heart in verse 10. In the attire of a harlot, clothes matter. Christian, man or woman, clothes matter. I'm not saying that clothes make a person a Christian or a sinner. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that what you wear does matter. It communicates a message to people. This woman was arrayed, was adorned, in the attire of a harlot. What's that? Well, as one sister described it, hoe clothes. That's what she called them. Because she used to wear them herself before she got saved. Oh, yeah, you're talking about that stuff. Those were my hoe clothes. That's real life. I love that kind of that kind of being real right there. At the right time, at the right place, you know, you know, not trying to necessarily cause people to stumble, but. That's exactly what she was engaged in. She knew the uniform that gets the job done. She knew that her body had power just by being attractive and female. And so what did she do? She capitalized on that and adorned herself in clothing that was not modest. Not only was it not modest, but it was expressly revealing and specifically designed to entice lust in a man. Now the Bible calls that sort of behavior lasciviousness. Have you heard that word? Have you read that word? You find it over in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, the churches in Galatia, Galatians, excuse me, chapter 5. It's one of the first four works of the flesh that he condemns, and that he says that those which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He says one of the he says adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. That word lasciviousness refers to behavior. Okay, and it's expressed in speech, and it's expressed in clothes, it's it's expressed in body language. A person behaving in such a way to deliberately entice sexual lust in someone else. Now, yes, there's an opposite direction to run. Now, we could all wear burkas, okay? But that's not what the Lord is calling us to. He calls us to modesty. This woman was not modest. This woman was the opposite of modest. She was on the prowl is what she was. And so she had the, she had the garments for that effect. She was subtle of heart, meaning she knew that what she was doing was wrong. And so she was acting subtly in a way like a snake, like a serpent, spoiling for the kill to accomplish what she wanted to accomplish. And then verse 11, this goes hand in hand with it. She is loud and stubborn on that for a second you ever met a woman like that i've met some men like that you ever met a woman that was like that a loud brassy indiscreet obnoxious creature in your face gonna tell you what she thinks you know what i'm saying it's not a virtue it's bad enough when a man is like that at times really. It's bad enough. But there's something about it when a woman takes on that kind of a character. Because it flies in the face of what the word of God tells a woman that she ought to be. I'm careful with this. I don't want to come off as a misogynist or sexist in any way, but I have to teach the whole truth and I can't back up from it just because I'm not a woman. Okay. The Bible extols in a godly woman, the Bible extols the virtues of having a meek, it does not mean weak, but of having a meek and a quiet spirit. It doesn't mean silent. It doesn't mean don't speak unless you're spoken to. That's not what the Bible's telling us. So let me just snatch those bullets out of the devil's gun right now. But one that is meek and quiet, not one that is loud and stubborn. Because a loud and stubborn woman is impossible to get along with. It's impossible to do anything with that. You can't reason with it. You can't manage it. You can't work with it. You can't do anything except just, all right, whatever. Back away and go do your own thing. It's a big problem. But this is the type of character that this woman here was exhibiting. And it was noteworthy enough that Solomon brings it out and records it in this book of wisdom in his instruction to his son. So he says, clothed with the attire of a harlot, subtle of heart, loud and stubborn, her feet abide not in her house. Uh Uh-oh. It's right there. And then he says in verse 12, right on the tail end of that, "Her her feet abide not in her house. Now she is without, meaning now she's outside. Now she's in the streets and lieth in wait at every corner godly woman manages her home doesn't mean she's a prisoner of it doesn't mean she can't go out again we're not muslims and this isn't saudi arabia where you can't leave your house unless you're veiled and you're escorted by a by your husband or a a male family member that's not what he's talking about here but again you've met this type you've known this type at some point in your life, you've met this type of person. It's like they're never at where they're supposed to be. And they're, not, they're never engaged in what God has made them responsible for. Now, is this the way that a godly woman wants to be? Is this the way that a Christian woman is called to be? Now, and again, it's not a one-way street. We'll go back and talk about the guy here in a second. Now, being young isn't a sin. It's just that it's unfortunately being, it's often attended with these other things, being simple and being void of understanding. But if you have a child that's simple and void of understanding, my question is to the mother and the father, why are they simple and void of understanding? Are we not teaching our children? Are we not teaching our children? We can't leave it to the public schools. Not the, not the formation of moral character and ethics you can't. You leave that into the hands of the public schools, your son might come home one day and tell you he's a woman. Schools are good for what they're supposed to be good for, generally speaking. They can teach them some math. It might be common core, but it'll at least help them add a couple of things up more or less right. But you've got to teach your sons and daughters what is right and wrong. They get their very first moral compass from you, from mom and dad. They get their very first system of ethics and morality from you, from mom and dad, not just from the children's church teachers. And, and my wife and sister, the they put in the work. They try. They're not just down there with, them, with your kids playing patty cake. They're teaching them about Jesus. They're teaching them about the law. They're teaching them about the Word of God. They're teaching them about, uh, about fruits of the Spirit. They're teaching them good things. But as parents... We've gotta be diligent. We lay the foundation, we lay the first works in their minds and in their hearts and in their understanding, and not just in the things that we tell them, but in the way that we live. So moms and dads, listen up, listen up. You're raising kids, they're watching your life. They're not just listening to your words, they're watching the way you live. And when they come across a discrepancy between your life and the word, they recognize it. They may not say anything, but they know it. Your kids are brilliant. They're operating, the younger they are, the more they're operating at genius level as far as perception and making connections in their own mind. And they'll know it. So there's instruction in here for all of us. Reproofs of instruction for all of us. And so, So she caught him and kissed him. This is verse 13. She caught him and kissed him and with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. What does that mean? It means that she knows good and well that adultery is wrong, but in her her thinking, her her understanding and her treatment of the word of God is one of a cost analysis and an exchange. In other words, this is the sin that I am determined in my heart to commit, and this is the penalty for it. I'm going to shore up against it, and I'm going to make sure that I pay my vows and do all the stuff that I need to do to make sure that the way is clear for me to go ahead and commit this sin. Why? Because she's also void of understanding. Just as much as him. She's void of understanding. She understands that what she's doing is wrong, but she fails to understand how serious the matter really is. And she doesn't understand that the word of God and that God himself, they don't work this way. It doesn't work like money. Righteousness doesn't work up like money stored up in a bank uh, to get an excess of it. And so you can spend some of it on some wicked living. It's like that that is not how it goes, man. That is not how it works. And so this, but this was her attitude so she paid these vows and all that, and then she meets with this man, tells him all of these things, all of these things in these sentences down here about how her, her bed is decked with coverings of tapestry and fine linen from Egypt, and it's been perfumed with stuff that smells nice, and you know, all of these things calculated to tear down his resistance. Again, it doesn't make him the victim. He's the dummy that went looking for this also, right? So we're not making him an innocent victim. He's just as guilty as she is. But maybe he's having second thoughts. So she's answering all the second thoughts. Come, let us take our fill of loves. My husband is away. The goodman is not home. He's got a bag of money. He'll come come home later. And now verse 21, he says, With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks till a dart strike through his liver as a bird hasteth to the snare and knoweth not that it is for his life. Now again, none of this gets him off the hook. He's still culpable for his own decisions. He should have known the law. He knew. He knew instinctively that's not something that you do. But in this particular account... She was the agent provocateur, wasn't she? She was on the hunt. And so what are the lessons here? Well, the lessons here are manifold. There are many. There's quite a few of them. Watch yourself. Walk in the Spirit, the Bible says, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. It's a promise. So how do you avoid this whole thing that he's described here, this whole scenario? Walk in the Spirit. Watch yourself. Be mindful of your testimony. Don't let yourself get get lured into areas of temptation. Walk in the Spirit. One more time, brothers and sisters, walk in the Spirit. And you won't even be tempted. Walk in the Spirit. And if you find yourself in temptation, walk in the Spirit And you'll walk right back out of that temptation. And then the devastation that befell this man and the devastation that befell this woman, which undoubtedly eventually it does, it will never darken your door. You'll never see the inside of a jail cell like that fella that I once knew. You'll you'll never be sitting sitting in a divorce court with your marriage in shambles because you did something or something was done to you and, and and it all played out to destruction on every single hand. Walk in the Spirit. And don't just guard yourself, okay? If you're a married folk, we don't have many, so it might sound kind of pointed, but it's hard not to when there's only as many as we have. You guard one another. Husbands, you be a husband to that woman you're married to you guard her with your life and you love her and you protect her and you be everything that God told you to be and be a leader. Don't shirk it off. Don't push off your responsibilities on her. You be the leader. That's what you're ordained to. And wives, you guard that man. You protect that man that you're committed to and married to. And don't just guard him. I I don't mean lock him in your home and don't ever let him out because he might see somebody who's pretty. I just mean be a wife to him. And love him. And be where God wants you to be. What that marriage and what that family needs you to be. You watch out for one another. You protect one another like siblings as well as like married folk. And there's nothing the devil can send in to destroy your marriage. He can't even get a foot in the crack of your door and your marriage will be strong and your marriage will be successful and it'll bring glory to God and joy and happiness to you both all the days of your life.
0: Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, Topical studies on biblical doctrines and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org. Backslash Cheyenne Giving.